And so it's so good to see everybody here this morning. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis chapter 25. Using one of the Bibles out of the rack in front of you like I am this morning, I think it is page 20. We're taking a little break from our study of the book of James, but Lord willing, we'll be back there next week and finish it up the following week. But I look forward to sharing with you this morning an ancient story uh, from the scriptures. A historical event happened, well, it's really hard to say when. It was so long ago uh, that it's a very difficult event to date. Uh, But scholars tell us maybe 1782 BC, which would make this 3,800 years ago. Now, the reason I mention that is because you will be amazed at how little things have changed in 3,800 years. Uh, This story, while it's set in an entirely different culture, uh, shows us something that's true of the struggles that we face today. And you will be surprised at at, at how closely this applies uh, to the day-to-day decisions that we make. So let's just jump in. Genesis chapter 25, verse 27 says, when the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter and an outdoorsman, but Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. So this is the story of Esau and Jacob. They were brothers, in fact, they were twins. Esau was the older of the two, but just by a minute or two. I mean, it's hard to even say that one's older than the other when they're twins, but one was older. Esau was the older of the two. Now, Esau and Jacob had a rivalry that went back all the way from birth. They came out of the birth canal fighting with one another. And now at uh, maybe age 20, uh, they're young adults. They're beginning to uh, set their pathway through life. Uh, So maybe functionally about what a 20-year-old would be today. They are still uh, engaged in this rivalry, this fight between one another. Now, they're they're very different personalities. And it says that Esau was a hunter and an outdoorsman. Uh, Jacob was more of of a bookworm. He was more of an inside guy. So very different young men, though they were brothers, though they were twins. Esau's the older, Jacob is the younger. That'll matter in a moment. Look at verse 28. It says, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Isaac is the father and Rebekah is the mother. And uh, the parents are playing favorites here a little bit. The father loves the outdoorsman, Esau, the firstborn. Uh, Rebekah loves Jacob. Uh, he's more of the, of the cook and the, and the bookworm and, and more of the homebody. And so mom loves Jacob more. Verse 29, once when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field exhausted. And so Jacob's at home. He's cooking. Esau's been out hunting. He comes in. Verse 30, he said to Jacob, Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stuff because I'm exhausted. Uh, That is why he is also named Edom. Edom means red. In this culture, your name really meant more, had much more significance than our names do today. And so that's the reference to Edom and that he was red. But he has requested some stew. He said, let me have some of that stew. I am hungry. Now look what he says in the next, in the next verse. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Now, a birthright was something that was very valuable. 
it was given to the oldest son in the family. And so even though these were twins, Esau was older, and so he would receive the birthright. Now, the birthright was valuable in a lot of different ways. It was valuable, first of all, financially, uh, because when the inheritance would be divided, in this this agrarian culture where everybody was a farmer, uh, and and inheritance meant uh, meant the world, when the inheritance was divided, uh, each son was given a portion, but the one with the birthright was given two portions. And so he would receive twice the inheritance of, of the other sons. Uh, it, it meant, though, much more than just a financial benefit. Uh, it meant that you had authority in the family. I mean, next to the dad came the one with the birthright. And when the dad gets older, and when the dad passes, the son with the birthright becomes really the, the leader of the family. But it didn't just have... Uh, significance in the family, it meant something in their community, it meant something in their government, it even meant something in the way that they practiced religion. If you had the birthright, you had a head start on everybody. Uh, now, in, in our day and time, that's, that's foreign. Uh, your birth order doesn't have anything to do with, with where, wh- how high you can climb in the company where you work. It doesn't have anything to do with what uh, governmental office you can hold or what you can do in the church. Birthright doesn't mean any of those things. Birth order doesn't mean any of those things today. But it was a very important thing in those days. If you had the birthright... Even in just a normal family. Now, this wasn't a normal family. Isaac is uh, the father. This, this family, this is a very significant family. But even in an ordinary family, to have the birthright would be so valuable that that would be by far the most valuable thing about yourself. You would introduce yourself as, I am Esau, the older. I am Esau, the one with the birthright. This was so valuable. And so Jacob says... I'll give you some stew, but you've got to give me the birthright. Verse verse 32. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? Now, we know that that's a gross exaggeration. Esau said that he was so hungry he was about to die. Have you ever said that? I'm about to starve to death. Now you know where that came from. And that was the beginning of a great sin. So maybe we shouldn't say those words anymore. But Esau says, I'm starving to death. Now when we say those words, we don't really mean we're about to die. And when Esau said those words, he didn't mean really that he was about to die. Had he been starving to death, he wouldn't have been able to walk through the door. So, but he exaggerates his desires and he says, if I don't get this stew, then what good is the birthright to me? I'm about to die. We'll see why in a moment uh, the, the desires had been so exaggerated. But look at them, close the deal. Verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me first. And so he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. And then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. And he ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright. He, he, he didn't even value his birthright. Now, what we see here is a man who is controlled by his desires. 
A man who's controlled by his desires. It's important to notice that because in a real way, all of us to a lesser or greater extent, we too are controlled by our desires. And we can learn some very important lessons by seeing how the desires of Esau caused him to make the worst deal in history. All because he was controlled by his appetite because he was controlled by his desires. Now, before we get into the, in, into the specifics of the text, let me just share with you four things you should know about desires. Four things you should know about our appetites that will really just help give some sense to the, to, to the story and why Esau did what he did. Number one, God created your appetites or your desires Sin distorted them. God created your desires. Sin distorted your desires. So every desire that you have, the kernel of that desire, the root of that desire came from the Lord. God is the one who gives us desire. Desires to be loved, desires to be secure, desires for peace and for joy, desires to relax and to rest, desires for sexual gratification. All of those things come from the Lord. Desires have been created by God, but sin distorts those desires. So all of us have some sinful desires, right? You have some, I have some. Uh, if you want to come up here, I'll give you a mic. You can share yours uh, with, the, with the television audience if you'd like this morning. Now, we all have some sinful desires, but those desires, here's what I want you to understand, are sinful because uh, they have been distorted by sin. They started out as something that God blessed us with, but sin distorts our desires until they become sinful. The second thing you should know about desires or appetites is that our appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. God has created us with these desires and you will not on this side of eternity fully and finally satisfy any of them. Now, why is that? Because we find our ultimate satisfaction in the Lord. And it's not until we are in eternity, it's not until we see Christ face to face that our desires, our appetites will be fully satisfied. And, and so that's a good thing, right? Because it, it leaves in us this, this constant anticipation of seeing Christ face to face. If we can be fully satisfied here so that we had no more desires, so that, so, so that there was nothing more we wanted, then we wouldn't have this longing to be with Jesus. But God has given us desires. They can be somewhat satisfied here, but never fully satisfied because we, he wants us to always have a desire for him. Now, that's an important thing to learn because in our culture, we we are all about fully and finally satisfying our desires. We don't want to wait. And so people maybe struggle with, um, with a lack of joy, or people struggle with a lack of peace, or people struggle with a lack of uh, an intimate relationship. And so what we, what we do is instead of, instead of waiting for God to be the ultimate satisfaction for everything we want, we think we have to, we have to settle those things immediately. But our desires, just know this, will never be fully and finally satisfied here. And that's the way God created it. Now that goes hand in glove with the next one. Number three, your appetites always whisper now, never later. Now you know this to be true. When you have a desire for something, when you have an appetite for something, it's never, it, it never says later. 
It never says fulfill this a month from now. Wait until you are married. Wait until you have some advancement in your career. Wait until you have a deeper walk with the Lord. No, our desires always say now. Now you have to have peace. Now you have to have joy. Now you have to have intimacy. Now, now, now. And, and, and many of the decisions that we make today are simply because we listen to our desires whisper now instead of listening to the wisdom of God, which also often says later, later. Now, the fourth thing about desires, as desires grow, perspective shrinks. Now, this explains why Esau made such a terrible deal. As your desires grow, as you desire something more and more and more, your perspective, your ability to see the big picture and the other issues involved shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until all you see is the thing you desire. Have you ever gone to a maybe a football game and you set up in the nosebleed seats of some big stadium. You ever done that? I've done that and I've taken a pair of binoculars because you know the players are so far away it looks like ants running around. And so you've got your binoculars and you zoom in on, well, whatever you want to zoom in on. You got a good pair of binoculars, you can zoom in, even at a great distance, you can zoom in on just one player and you can watch what that player does. Now, uh, those of you who are, who are football fans and go to football games, you know that th th there is some, I mean, that's fun to watch one player, but there's a problem with that, right? You didn't just come to watch one player. When you, when you focus on one player, you fail to see all the other things that are happening. And the more you zoom in on one player, the less of the field, the less of the game that you see because you lose perspective. You're focused on just one thing. Everything else goes to black. Well, the same thing happens in our lives when we just focus on one desire. And when that desire grows and grows and grows, we forget everything else. Here's Esau. He has a desire for stew. And this desire, he's so hungry. He thinks that the only thing that matters is stew. He gives up the most valuable thing. And just wait, in a moment you're going to see this is more valuable than you even suspect. But he gives up the most valuable thing for a bowl of stew. Why would he do that? Well, because when we focus on our desires and when our desires grow, it, it limits our perspective. He didn't see anything else. You know, sometimes um, I'll sit down with a man or some man will come sit down with me and say, uh, Pastor, I've, I've lost my family because I had an affair. I lost my relationship with child my children because of something that I've done. And and he'll tell the story and it'll be a heartbreaking story. And, I, and I'll ask the question, uh, well, I mean, what were you thinking? I mean, you gave up. I mean, you've just gone through a list of all that you've lost. For what? What were you thinking? And you know what? And I'm usually sitting across from a man who's intelligent or a woman who's intelligent, who has a, who has a college degree, who's had some success in life, who knows how to read and, and, and add up numbers together. How in the world could they give up all of this for this? And you know what they'll say? Pastor, I wasn't thinking about it. I have no idea. That was the worst deal I ever made. Now, how could, how could an otherwise intelligent person do that? Well, because the more our desire grows, the more our perspective shrinks, and that's all we see. 
and you don't see your family. You don't see what Thanksgiving is going to be like three years from now. You, you're not thinking about all of the Christmases that have been, that have been ruined. You, you, all you think about is this, that one thing, everything else fades to the background. That can happen in every aspect of life, whether it's career or ministry. If, if we're not careful, when our desires grow, our perspective will shrink and, and we'll make a deal like Esau made a deal. Now we have to be careful that we don't, we don't beat up on Esau too much uh, because when Esau looked at this deal, this offer that Jacob made, he was looking from the perspective of his desires. I desire to eat. Now when we look back and we're critical of him, we, we are looking from the perspective of history. We see all the different parts and how they fit together. It's easier for us to see how much he gave up, but it was hard for him to see because his focus was simply on his desire. Do you know how much he gave up? Let's just stop and talk about that a moment. So anytime you eat the stew, there is a price that you pay. And so what did he get? I mean, let's, let's analyze this deal. What did he get? Well, he got 10 minutes of uh, some pretty good stew. Apparently, it was, it was tasty. His, his brother Jacob had a reputation for cooking good food. And so maybe, maybe 10 minutes of enjoying eating the stew. Or maybe you could say he got three hours of being satisfied so that he wasn't hungry for three hours. But that's it, right? I mean, it wasn't that he was never hungry again. It, it wasn't that he had been given stew for the rest of eternity. It was, it was 10 minutes of eating, three hours maybe of being filled, and that was it. What did he give up? Well, he gave up a great deal financially. He gave up a great deal reputation and uh, authority in his family and in his community. But let me show you something even more significant he gave up. Really, to appreciate the fullness of his sacrifice, we would have to go through the next 1,800 years of Jewish history, which I promise you we won't try to do this morning. But if you did that, and many of you, you, you you're students of the Bible, and you know the next 1,800 years, and, and, and you're thinking right now, I never really thought about just how much Esau gave up. But in case you don't know that, let me just explain it by sharing three verses with you. Three verses that I think just sort of encapsulate and highlight what Esau gave up for a bowl of stew. The first thing, well, these are going to be tied to three, the next three main characters in the Bible. The next one will be Joseph. If you don't know Joseph, he's the next big character on the scene, and he's the one who saved the nation of Israel from famine. And then the next big character on the scene is Moses. And Moses was the one who led them out of Egypt to the edge of the promised land. Uh, the next one, I mean, there have been some other great Bible characters in between, but the next one is Jesus. And you know who Jesus is, the, the, the Son of God. So let me read to you a verse with each one of those that says something about what Esau gave up. Genesis 50, 24. And you don't have to look this up. It's, just, it's really just one word I want you to hear. Well, we got it on the screen, so that's even better. So look at this. Joseph said, I am about to die, but God will certainly come to your aid and bring you up from this land to the land he swore to give to whom? To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now that was supposed to say something different. It could have said, it's probably a better way to say it. It could have said something different. 
But when, when Jacob was dying and he characterized the people of God, he said the best way to characterize them is to say that they're the people of Abraham, Isaac, and somebody who was not Esau. You see, Esau was going to be, in a sense, the father of the nation, one of the, one of the fathers of the nation. But now he's not for a bowl of stew. Now, look with me at the next verse, Exodus 3, 6. This is uh, Moses. God is speaking to Moses. Moses doesn't know which God this is. Moses doesn't know who God is. And so God speaks to Moses and he's going to identify himself. He says, do not come closer. Remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I am the Lord, the God of your father. Now notice this, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of whom? Jacob. Now this is, this is significant. When God identified himself, God said, I want to be known as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of somebody not named Esau. See, that Esau's name could have been in there. God could have characterized himself as the God of Esau. What an honor that Esau forfeited that for a bowl of stew. Now, let me show you one more. Matthew chapter 1, the first two verses in the New Testament, it is the genealogy of Jesus, the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus. It says the account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and here it goes. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered whom? Jacob, and Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. See, again, could have said Esau, but Jacob becomes the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. And Esau forfeits that for a bowl of stew. For a bowl of stew. You, you see what he gave up? You see what he gave up for, for, for so little? Now, I know you're thinking you would never have made that deal. It's an interesting story, Pastor, but it doesn't apply to me. I would never have given up my birthright, my place in my family, my financial future, and my relationship, in a sense, with the Lord and the Lord's people forever for a bowl of stew. Well, let's be careful. Let's don't be prideful here. You wouldn't give it up for a bowl of stew because you're not hungry for stew, but you're hungry for something. The question is, what is your stew? And we all have one. For all of us, there's something out there. There's some temptation that pricks us like the stew pricked Esau. I mean, we, we, we're not going to give it up for a bowl of stew. That seems silly. But how many people will give up God's plan for their life for a little extra comfort or for some ungodly relationship? Or, or, to, or, or to have more friends or to succeed in, in business ahead of when God might have otherwise blessed us. See, all of us have a stew. And it doesn't even have to be a moral thing. You know, if we, we were to talk about uh, giving up your 
giving up your future for, for some illicit relationship. And that's a moral thing. It's easy to see black and white, but sometimes we, we give it up for something that's, that's not moral at all. Maybe we give it up for our hobbies. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a hobby, nothing wrong with going and looking at the leaves in the fall or, or, or playing golf or basketball or needlepoint or whatever kind of hobby you do. There's nothing wrong with any of those things unless you give time and energy to a hobby that you ought to be giving to the Lord, ought to be given to your family. Maybe it's kids' sports teams. I'm all for kids playing sports. My kids play sports and, and they've enjoyed that. And that's been, been a significant part of our lives. But, but, but too often, families forfeit. They forfeit the birthright. They forfeit what God wants to do so that, so that kids can be a, a little more successful at soccer. See, we've we've got we to be careful what we're giving up for, for bowls of stew. So let me give you three lessons that we learn from this. Three lessons that we learn from, from Esau giving up his birthright for, for stew that I think will guide us. Number one, embracing ungodly desires limits a person's perspective. And we've already said this, but I want to add to it. When we embrace these ungodly desires, it limits our perspective. You know, the fastest way, and I'm going to use a word that I know moms and dads will cringe a little bit, but uh, just hang with me. The fastest way to become stupid is to chase after your desires because your desires will so narrow your focus that you will find yourself doing something that later on you'll sit in my office or, or you'll sit across from your husband or across from your wife and you'll say, just with tears, I can't believe how much I gave up for what I got. And, 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 and everybody will scratch their head and say, well, why would she do that? I can't understand the thinking that led to that. Well, because there wasn't any thinking, because your desires just so narrowed your perspective. And all of us are fighting that. All of us, anytime we have temptation, anytime we ponder the desires, it's, it's working on narrowing our perspective. Now, how do we counteract that? The word of God. When we read the word of God, when you hear the word of God preached, uh, when, when, when you study the word of God, when you, when you study the word of God with, with friends in Sunday school classes, when, when you're in Bible study groups, the word of God broadens our perspective, helps us to step back and make better decisions. And, and, and so my, my desires are always narrowing the perspective. The word of God is, is broadening our perspective. Why is it important to be in church every week? Why is it important for our kids to be in church every week? Why is it important to read your Bible every day? Some people say, well, you know, I've heard all the sermons and I've read all of the stories. Well, perhaps you have, but but it is through our exposure to the word of God that our perspective is broadened and we counteract how our, our desires are narrowing it. I shudder to think the decisions that I could make and the deals that I could do with the devil if I didn't keep my mind broadened every week by the word of God. And all of us should feel the gravity of that. Esau was not a stupid man. 
He just was a man who lost perspective. And you and I could lose the same perspective just as fast. And we could give our birthright away for a bowl of stew. Let us make the word of God in our lives and in our family's life the most important thing so that our perspective will remain broad. Number two, small compromises can have big consequences. Small compromises can have big consequences. It's interesting, and this is not the only way or even maybe the most logical way to look at the Old Testament, but this is still legitimate. The whole Old Testament story, in one sense, hinged on Esau and a bowl of stew. If you were to go back, those of you who are students of Scripture, if you were to go back, and I'm not taking away from the sovereignty of God, nothing happened outside of God's plan. But if we set that aside and we just look at things from a, from a human perspective, you go back and you let Esau keep his birthright, and you think about how that changes the story from there on out, it is different. It is very different. This becomes a hinge point. We look back on our lives, there will be some hinge points. Maybe it'll happen in high school or in college or early in our marriage. Maybe there's a decision that you're considering right now, a temptation. Maybe it's not even a moral issue. Maybe it's this job or that job. Maybe it's make this new commitment or not. It it doesn't have to be a moral issue. But we're going to look back and we're going to discover that there were a few times in our lives that those decisions, while they may have seemed insignificant at the time, become hinge points where our whole life either goes this direction or it goes that direction. You know what this, this historical account tells me? I need to strive to be obedient in the small things because who knows, who knows what God may allow to hinge on those decisions. The third thing, the final thing is this. The pleasures of sin are brief, but the blessings of God are forever. So Esau consumed this stew in 10 minutes. 10 minutes, 10 minutes. But God's description as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and somebody other than Jacob will stand for eternity. You, you, you see the contrast? I mean, this is, this is such a clear contrast. He, he, had, he received something that lasted 10 minutes. He gave up something that lasted eternity. So here's what we need to know. The pleasures of sin are brief. You can embrace some things, bring you pleasure. But the wise person builds his life on what has eternal value. And this is what I want my kids to learn, that the pleasures of sin are brief, but build your life on something that lasts forever. This is what I want college students to hear. This is what I want the SFA football team to hear in the next service, that that, that, sure, there, there are temporary opportunities, 
But we need to look at things from an eternal perspective. And from an eternal perspective, the only thing that matters is your relationship and walk with God. I remember when I was uh, a younger man and someone shared with me the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know, at the time, it didn't seem, well, there were a lot of other things that were pulling me different ways. But because of the grace and the mercy and the sovereignty of God, I responded to that. I decided to let my life hinge on something that was eternal. And God saved my life, forgave my sins, and secured for me a place in heaven. Is your life wrapped around the temporary or is your life wrapped around the eternal? Esau said, now is what matters. We should say, eternity is what matters. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed for just a moment. I want to challenge you in three ways. Number one, if you're facing a decision right now, a temptation, could it be that you're about to make a very poor decision? Not because you're not smart, not even because you're not spiritual, but because your desire has narrowed your perspective. Would you slow down? Would you refuse to say what Esau said? I am so hungry, I'm about to die. You're not about to die. And would you, would you expose yourself to God's word until your perspective is broadened? And then make the decision God would have you to make. Right now, there are people here, both in this room, on the internet, people watching around the country, and then on our television broadcast, who are about to make the worst deal of their life. Broaden your perspective with God's word. Secondly, do you understand that every day we make a decision to either wrap our lives around what is temporary or to wrap our lives around what is eternal? To live for what lasts for 10 minutes or to live for what lasts forever? We make the decision with our families, we make the decision with our finances, we make the decision with our time, are you wrapping your life around the temporary? Or are you wrapping it around the, the eternal? And then the last thing, there is no better deal you can make than to trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. To surrender to him, to make him the Lord of your life and let him forgive you based on his work upon the cross to lead you and guide you. If you've never made that decision, that's the deal you need to take. Father, as we stand and sing in a moment, I pray your Holy Spirit just allows this message to burrow into our hearts that we will not be Esau's, but we will be people who live for eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Let's stand as we respond.